Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we praise you for all the glory that you have. We praise you for the love that you give to us. And God, we know that part of that love is the word that you have given to us so that we can know you more. So this morning, God, as we dig into your word, I pray that you will show us uh, the message that you have for us. Uh, Have it reach down deep into our hearts and cause us to praise you and to live a life that glorifies you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So we are... um, now in our second week of our series into Ephesians, and um, I'm, I promise it won't go as long as our Acts series, but I probably also won't continue to number them as we go along. This is the second one, and I'm going to stop counting here. Um, but we're in Ephesians, and we're calling this series, Live Worthy of Your Calling. And that comes right from chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Now, last week I explained that we live in a secular culture that tells us it's okay to believe in the Bible as long as we don't believe it so strongly that it actually affects what we do or how we live. And we definitely should not tell others that Christian faith is the one and only true faith. We're told that we can be Christian, but don't stand out so much to be weird. We're told that we can be Christian, but we need to keep it to ourselves. All right. For example, let me give you an example. In the July 26th edition of the Wall Street Journal, there was an article titled, No, American Religious Liberty is Not in Peril. Now, this was a pair of articles. One said that religious liberty is in peril. The other was the argument that it is not in peril. So to the Wall Street Journal's uh, credit, I guess, they they gave both sides the argument. Um, And But the author of the the article that was arguing that religious liberty is not in peril, her name was... um, Marcy Hamilton, and she was a clerk for the Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And a part of her argument, a core part of her argument, I will quote to you, it says, there is only one absolute right in the Constitution, and that is the First Amendment guarantee of the right to believe anything you want. That's the end of that quote. Now, that sounds nice, but it's a very dangerous argument that she presents. She's trying to limit religious freedom to what goes on in your head, to what you believe. Now, the Constitution... Does not, does not give us the right to believe whatever we want. We don't need a constitution to give us the right to believe because we can believe things even if it's against the law, right? The constitution actually says, the First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now there's a big difference between the right to believe what you want and the right to exercise your faith, okay? So I I realize that we're not in here on on a a, a constitutional law class, but that just kind of goes to the point of what I'm trying to say, that we live in a culture that tells us that we can believe what we want, but keep it to ourselves. But here in Ephesians, Paul tells us, Paul shows the Ephesians that exercising their belief in the gospel should infiltrate and affect every area of our life, of their life, and cause such a strong change that it should be seen as a whole new life. Not just a revamped life, but a whole new life. Not just reorganized, but totally and wholly new. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get right into this um, in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. I'm sorry. um, So this passage, or this uh, sermon, is titled, In Him. All right, and in this, we see that we are adopted according to God's pleasure. We are adopted into God's family according to God's pleasure. We see that broken down into four ways, that God chose us in Jesus, that in him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption. 
in Jesus we have an inheritance, and in him we are sealed. Now, one more thing before we actually dive into the text. I was torn about this passage, whether to do all of 3 through 14 as one big text or break it up into four sections that are basically outlined here in these four points. But as I started studying it, I saw that Paul basically wrote this as one big sentence. Now, for us, when we look at that, we say, well, that's a really long sentence. That can't be right. That must be a run-on sentence, like a third grader just learning how to write, you know, learning grammar rules. But when we look at Greek rhetoric, the ability to tie together long sections of text as one thought was seen as a way to display wisdom and thoughtfulness. And so Paul here takes this whole text, verses 3 through 14, and presents it, well, basically kind of like one big sentence. Now, I say basically like one big sentence because in the Greek language that Paul would have written in, there was no um, punctuation. So scholars may disagree here and there on where to put a comma or a period, or you know, one scholar wants to put a comma here, another wants to put a period there, but everybody agrees that this kind of all flows as one big thought. Now we break it up into several different sentences because it helps us to understand it, but when we understand that Paul really meant this to be taken as a whole, well, that was kind of why I decided to take this whole sermon here as one instead of breaking it into four different parts. All right, so now let's go ahead and get into that. Starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Now, as a quick side note, the title of this sermon is In Him, and the reason that I chose that is because that specific phrase, in him, is used five times in this passage. But if we include other phrases like in Christ or in the beloved one, that number jumps from five times to 12 times. So that idea of being in Jesus carries throughout this whole passage, all right? So real quick, this first phrase, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this text, this whole passage this morning, is meant to be a single statement of praise to God. Just one big statement of praise, one praise prayer that Paul is offering to God. Paul takes this moment at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians to give praise to God. Notice that Paul calls Jesus our Lord. Right? This reiterates a couple of points that I made last week. This letter is written to believers. Right? This letter is written to believers. That means that when we read this, we don't want to read it as a, an, um, a letter to non-believers. <clears throat> right? And that kind of helps us to understand these first three chapters. Because the first three chapters, Paul really looks at how the gospel, or, or really looks at what the gospel is and what it means. Right? So this is written to believers. You would think, well, maybe believers already know the gospel. But it helps us to, to know that Paul wrote this to believers even as believers, we still need to study and try to understand more of the gospel. As believers, we can't say, okay, well, we started at the gospel, but now we're moving to something else. We stay at the gospel. That's how we grow. That's how we grow closer to Christ. That's how we grow more like Jesus, is by living in the gospel. We cannot move past the gospel. We cannot grow past the gospel. That's where we stay. That's where we live. That's how we grow closer to God. Also, when he says, our Lord, Paul is uh, kind of, re again, reiterating a point that I made last week, that believers are one family serving the same king. 
All right. So our next little highlight here is he says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So here's a point that's really hard for some people to grasp. It's really, uh, it's been argued a lot throughout the ages. God chose who would be believers before he created anything in Genesis 1. Before God said, let there be light, he already knew exactly who you would be. He knew your sins and he'd choose you before, before you were born. Well, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, but what about free will? Humans have free will. We can choose to believe God. Well, let me just put it this way, all right? There are a lot of good, God-loving people on both sides of the argument who are smarter than I am and who could give you a better presentation of both arguments. However, all right, does Scripture say that God chose us? Yes, it does. Does Scripture say that humans have free will? Yes, it does. All right. Now, these two realities are working together to bring you to salvation. They're not working against each other. It's not predestination versus free will. It's predestination and free will. Yes, we have free will to choose God, but when we look at our lives and we assess ourselves honestly, can we honestly say that left to my own free will, would I ever choose God? No, I'm a sinner, and I am sinful through and through. And so with my free will, I will always choose sin. Without God's loving predestination, without God choosing me, I wouldn't choose him. And so they are working together for my salvation. Scripture tells us that even though we have free will, because of our sin, our free will is always going to choose sin. The thought or desire to pursue God always starts with God. It's first put in us by him. If you are a believer, yes, you chose God, but he first chose you. If you are not a believer, it is a very real possibility, and it is my hope that God has chosen you and simply waiting for you to choose him back. If you do choose to pick a side and whether you're going to fall on predestination versus free will, um, ultimately, that really doesn't change our life, our daily life as believers. We still have the same commission to go and make disciples. We still have the same uh, objective to, to, to grow God's kingdom. We were saved through Jesus' sacrifice for his pleasure, pleasure because of his love for us. And that's what the rest of verses five and six say. It says, he predestined us, sorry, here we go. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So again, we're looking at through Christ, right? Salvation is only through Jesus. I can't do anything on my own. I can't do it. Hannah can't do it. Matt can't do it. I can't do it. It's only through Jesus. Well, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our brokenness. See, creation, the way that God created the world, and his design was that we would all be in perfect relationship with him, with each other, and with the rest of creation. But sin took that relationship, or those relationships, and broke them. When we choose sin, it breaks those relationships. There's nothing that we can do to fix our brokenness. So God, in his love, made a way. God sent his son, Jesus, to defeat sin and free us from its grasp. If we believe in his life, death, and resurrection and repent from our sins, then we will be saved. And once we are saved from sin, then we are free to recover and pursue God's design in our life. And right, so that's kind of the, the, the outline here of, of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 explains the gospel in depth, in detail. And then chapters four through six explain how the gospel affects your life as a believer. It explains how we recover and pursue God's design in our life, right? 
Oh, sorry. And it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, a lot of times when people think about predestination, their big problem is that it seems unfair. And they look at it in a negative light, that God would choose some people and not choose others. That's not fair. Well, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, that's right. It's not fair. Because what I just explained is that what fair would be, would be that we're all sent to hell. That we're all given the punishment that we deserve. But that's why it's called grace. Well, that's why it's called glorious grace. Paul calls it his glorious grace, God's glorious grace. It's better than fair. Now, it's horrible that not everybody is chosen for that grace. However, because of God's perfect justice, he cannot allow sin to be unpunished. But it is his glorious grace that he chooses some of us. Now, last week I defined grace as getting something good that you did not earn. Now, I have a coworker who hunts, and each year she brings me a few pounds of venison. Well, that's grace, right? It's something good. Well, some of you might not think it's good, but I think it's good. It's something good that I did not earn, but she's given it to me anyway. Now, I might not call that glorious grace, but it's still grace. Salvation is glorious grace because it is so much greater than any gift we could ever imagine. It's also glorious because were it not for this grace, we would not have exercised our free will to accept the gift of salvation. Paul describes salvation as a gift that God lavished on us. God lavished this gift on us. That means it's not inconsequential. This is huge, glorious, beautiful, magnificent, amazing grace that God lavished on us. Now, Paul spends the next few verses explaining that lavish grace. Now, we spend a lot of time on this first section, so I'll try to move fairly quickly through the rest of this text. We still have a good bit to get through. Starting in verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So, redemption. Right? The idea of redemption is one that, that understanding is severely limited in our culture. Outside of redeeming a coupon, I'm not sure that this word gets much use outside the church. <clears throat> in the church, the word redemption or redeem has kind of become a, a Christianese term. Now, I, I've used that word a little bit, but the way that I define Christianese, it's a word that's used in the church that basically has no meaning outside the church. People outside the church have no idea what that means. And if we're being completely honest with ourselves, there's a lot of people in the church who really couldn't give a good explanation of it either. Christianese are words that have kind of lost touch with our culture, all right? And redeemed or redemption is one of those words. Now, sometimes I'm okay with leaving Christianese and choosing a different word. But in this case, this word is found in the Bible, and it's a big thought. It's a big idea that's carried throughout the Bible. I don't want to leave it behind. I think it's a word that we need to define. We need to understand it. We need to help people in our culture understand it. Yes, it's Christianese, but it's not a word that we need to throw away. We need to keep it, all right? So redemption is the idea of obtaining possession of something in exchange for a payment, often used in the context of debt. All right, I'm going to say that again. Redemption means that you're obtaining possession of something in exchange for payment. And that's often used in the context of debt, okay? In terms of the church, in terms of the gospel, 
What this means is that we were enslaved to sin and destined to hell. We sell ourselves into slavery when we choose sin. And there's no way for us to buy ourselves out of that slavery. We've sold ourselves into sin, into slavery to sin, and we cannot buy ourselves out of that sin. We cannot buy our freedom from that sin. But Jesus came down and he bought our freedom. He bought our freedom. He paid the price. And that price was his life, his perfect life. He paid down our debt and set us free. And it says, he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. All right, the idea that God's grace is poured out on just some, just those that God has chosen from before time began, again, like I said, it does not sit well with everyone. It does not seem fair. And again, I say it's not fair. It's better than fair. Now, I think of it like this. Again, with any analogy that we use, there are often shortcomings, and this is not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a pretty good analogy, all right? So let's say that we, as a church, we collected water bottles to pass out to homeless people in, uh, during the North Carolina summers. It gets pretty hot here, right? People need water. We have a fairly sizable homeless population here in Cumberland County. So as a church, we collect water to pass out to the homeless community. And we collect a lot of water, and so what we do is we go and we take it and we, we drop it off at a couple of homeless shelters or, or different ministries that care for the homeless. But we don't, we don't manage to get a water bottle to every single homeless per person, right? Is that fair? Well, no, it's grace. It's better than fair. Not everybody got one, but those that did get one, it was a gift. It was a good gift that they got. Again, if we think of that kind of in terms of God's grace that he chose some, now, like I said, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's an okay analogy. See, God paid the price for sin, and in his wisdom and in his understanding, he chose who he would give that grace to, right? Again, one of the shortcomings of that analogy is that many people in our homeless community did not cause their homelessness. However, each and every one of us caused our slavery to sin. We all caused that when we chose sin. So yes, we have free will, but that free will, because of our sinfulness, will always choose sin unless God steps in with grace. He chooses that grace. He chose us out of his wisdom, right? And it's, but why? Why did he choose us? What was the purpose of all this grace? And that is to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. Now, again, this points to the purpose of our redemption, why did God choose us? Why did God choose to give grace to some? Right, God chose some to give grace to, but not simply to save them from sin. That, that is, it's great, it's glorious grace, but it's not just to save us from sin. It was to restore God's design. God designed all of us, again, God designed all of us to be in perfect relationship with him, with each other, and the rest of creation. Right, but because of sin, that relationship is broken. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we are brought back to that perfect relationship with God. And then through the gospel, through sharing the gospel, and through living out the gospel, we start to restore that great design back into the rest of creation. And Paul says, uh, bring everything together in Christ. So we're restoring those relationships through the gospel. But not just our interpersonal relationships. Most importantly, it would be our relationship with God. It includes our interpersonal relationships, but also the rest of creation. Now, when we look at our, um, our role in that, it's hard for us to restore creation to the way it was before sin. 
No matter of fact, we can't do that. It's impossible for us to do that. However, we do need to be good stewards of the world that we have and not waste it away. And continuing, verse 11, it says, In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. All right? It says we have received an inheritance. Going back to God's grace in Jesus, part of that grace includes an inheritance. The inheritance comes from being adopted into God's family, being adopted into the royal family. Right? If you're being adopted into a royal family, that means you have access to the royal treasury. We are adopted into God's family. There's no greater royalty than that. We are adopted as God's children. The inheritance um, includes, but is not limited to, eternity in heaven, favor with God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's power, but most importantly, the inheritance includes a reconciled relationship with your Heavenly Father. And that Heavenly Father is the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will. Now, this idea often gets twisted. You hear it quoted a lot, this idea. Right? Some people try to interpret this text to say that everything that happens is according to God's will. But I just don't think that's biblical. Right? I don't think that God willed Adam and Eve to rebel against God's command. I don't think God willed Abraham to have a child with Hagar. I don't think God willed that the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews. I don't think God willed David to sleep with Uriah's wife and then later have Uriah killed. I don't think God willed for Saul to slay Christians. Making it a little more personal, I don't think that God willed any of our miscarriages. I don't think that God willed for Miss May to die or for Loretta's sister to die. I don't think God willed any of that. However, I do know that God can work out these events in order to fulfill His will. These are horrible events that impact our lives, and it hurts. I'm not saying God causes all of those. They're not all God's will. But what this text does say is that, yes, bad things happen, and they go against God's will. But He is wise enough and powerful enough to still be able to work these events into an overarching narrative that fulfills His will. Does that make the hurt go away right now? No, it doesn't. But it does help us to know that a glorious God who gives us glorious grace can work these horrible events to fulfill His glorious will. Continuing in our passage, it says, In Him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. All right, so this whole, this kind of closing thought here is about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is someone that Baptists don't often talk about. Right, so as a joke, um, when we had an electrician coming in, uh, working on a couple things in our um, um, breaker box, he was looking at the breaker box, and, and he, had, he was looking around, and, and he had this real puzzled look on his face. So he climbed up, he pushed a couple of the ceiling tiles back, and he climbed up, and he was looking behind the panel box through the ceiling. And he goes, oh, that's weird. I said, okay, well, what is it? Well, he comes out, and he comes into the, the kitchen here, and he pushes back a couple of ceiling tiles, and he, he goes back up, and he's looking behind the panel box, and he says, well, I've never seen that before. I said, what is it? He said, well, when they built the building, they kind of left a, a blank area back here. So behind the panel box, there's a little area that's about two feet by three feet that's 
between the wall and the exterior wall that's just there. Could have been a little small closet, or we could have just pushed the panel box back a little bit. And I joked. I said, well, that's, that's where we keep the Holy Spirit, make sure he doesn't get out. I mean, we're a Baptist church. We can't let him get out. <laughs> but seriously, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And he is the God who comes down to live inside of believers. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin and empowers you to do God's will in your life. Believers receive the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. When you are saved, you get the Holy Spirit. So it says, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, that is the seal of your salvation. That's how you know you are saved. You have the Holy Spirit. It is also through the power of the Holy Spirit that you are able to live a life that glorifies God. It is through the Holy Spirit that we first believed, but it's also through the Spirit that we continue to believe and continue to grow closer to Christ. And this whole series on Ephesians is about our faith and how that faith affects our lives, exercising our faith, not mere belief, but faith that leads to action. That action only happens when we surrender to the Holy Spirit. It only happens through the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the believer and our surrender to his power. So what application do we get from this? I know we've kind of gone all over the place this morning, a lot of different uh, areas that we've covered. But like I said, Paul was tying together one big thought here. So what application do we get as believers? All right, so to know, know that God chose us. Right? In some crowds, predestination is almost a bad word. The thought that God chose some for salvation seems unjust or unfair, but God's choice is an act of grace. It is his glorious grace. That means that yes, it is unfair, but it is better than fair. All of us have a choice, but all of us chose sin. And through God's grace, he chose for some to be saved. So God chose us. The second application point is to be, that's to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Right? This happens through salvation. So if you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let today be the day for that. Be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to believers at the moment of salvation, and it is the down payment of our inheritance. And finally, the do, and that's to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Once you are saved, you can't just say, okay, I got the Holy Spirit, now I'm good to go, I'm done. Uh, it doesn't stop there. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to continue to guide your life. It's not just we surrender to the gospel and we're good to go. We accept the gospel. We believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us and we surrender to the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and our faith in the gospel, that leads to a life that glorifies God. Through the Holy Spirit, we are given power to live according to the gospel and to share it with others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you for your word. It is through your word that we can know you more, but not just your word. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that we can know your word better, that we can know you more, and that we can grow closer to you. Father, I pray that you will help us to, have, to place our faith in you, not just for salvation, but each and every moment of every day. Help us to place our faith in you. For every decision that we make, for every life that we see, God, I pray that you will help us to, to live through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can share your gospel and grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
So we've come to our point of surrender, and you can pray right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.